Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to Cross Section. Today we're going to be talking about Scottish politics, the Brits, sexualisation and blasphemy in popular culture, Super Bowl adverts and news of what some are calling a revival breaking out on a Kentucky college campus. I never say the cross-section doesn't cover the full range of issues in public life. But through all of this, our hope is that our conversation helps you to consider how to follow Jesus more closely and to navigate the latest political and cultural shifts. The alert among you may have noticed I sound a little bit different than your regular host, Joe. She's not with us this week, and I, Danny Webster, will be guiding you through our conversation. But do not fear, because next week I'll be gone and Joe will restore things to their rightful order. As we start, I want to uh, reflect on last week's episode uh, when during our first birthday party game of Pass the Parcel, I confidently predicted that following the political chaos of 2022, we could look forward to a more stable year in 2023. And I want to assure you that that's the sort of accurate political analysis you only get here on Cross Section. It's also a reminder that politics of the UK are about far more than what happens in Westminster. Uh, And with that tease, we will get to this week's political developments in Scotland shortly. But I felt that I should take this opportunity to confess to that particular mistake. On the podcast today, I'm joined by Alicia here in the Evangelical Alliance's London office and Peter over in Northern Ireland. And I was just wondering if they would like to share in my pain about being confident and totally wrong about predictions. So first, Peter, have you made confident predictions that turned out to be total nonsense or is it just me? Oh, Danny, definitely not. Absolutely just you. And I think that confession is good for your soul. Well done, you. I, I, I did confidently predict that I would finish writing a book, something I'm now regretting and I'm now in the editing process that is definitely close to sending me over the edge. But soon, one day, a book will emerge on being human. So that's my prediction that I'll, I'll see. You can review that in a few months' time. We'll review that when we will surely talk about uh, the book when it comes out. I think we might do a, a live review with Peter in the hot seat. How about you, Alicia? I mean, I'm eating humble pie this morning because I was confident that Arsenal uh, was one going to win the league and was going to beat Man City. And today, the morning after, we took an absolute whooping at home to Man City, lost 3-1. I'm still confident. I don't know why. It's false faith, I think, that they could win the league. But at the moment, it's 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 sad. It's a sad, sad morning. <laughs> Well, we're recording this episode of Cross Section on Thursday morning. I think it helps for us to set that out because political things move quickly. And just yesterday, shockwaves were sent through the political world with the announcement that Nicola Sturgeon will step down as leader of the SNP, the Scottish National Party, and as Scottish First Minister. Before we get into discussing that, uh, yesterday, Joe caught up with Chris Ringland, who is our public policy officer in Scotland, for his immediate take on this news. Hey, Chris. Hi there, Joe. So today's thrown a bit of a curveball. Talk us through what's happened. Yeah, it's been quite a surprising day in Scottish politics. Seismic probably would be the word that would describe it best. Uh, We had the quite surprising news this morning that the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was going to resign. A lot of echoes, I think, certainly from from where we are uh, to sort of what Jacinda Ardern was like a couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, when she 
stepped down and when she resigned when she said she didn't have much left in the tank uh, to do the job properly yeah I think there are a lot of similarities so, here so yeah t- tell us why summarize for our listeners what why is Nicola Sturgeon stepping down <clears throat> yeah I think if you looked at it just kind of from the past couple of weeks some people would think it's kind of only because of the kind of all the fallout with the gender recognition reforms I would say that that that's I'm sure that is maybe part of it but really this has been a long time over a long period of time there's been a lot of difficult issues that the first minister has dealt with you know whether it is the whole of COVID, the NHS, uh, drug deaths, ferries even in the Highlands and Islands has been a massive issue. There's just lots of issues that have kind of built up over time. And I think where the BBC correspondence was, was just saying that his source was just saying, you know, she's just done and uh, and she's, she's human. And I think that is a big reason of why this has happened. Yeah. And do you have a gut feeling at this point about what will happen next? Who might replace her? Yeah, so I was just looking into it, and there hasn't actually been a leadership election for the whole of the SNP since 2004, because she succeeded Alex Salmond unopposed in 2014. So I think it's just kind of whoever gets the most votes wins sort of thing, but we'll see how that the kind of timeline of that is. But yeah, there's a couple of the, the cabinet ministers in the Scottish government are, are the ones who are being talked about at the moment. But the, the difficulty and the interest, interesting thing about it is that because Nicola Sturgeon as a, as a leader has been so strong over such a long period of time, it isn't immediately obvious who the kind of successor would be. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of pans out within the, within the SNP over the next couple of months. And lastly, what, what, what do you think our member churches should be doing right now? Is there a way that they can be engaging? It's a huge moment. I kind of overstate how massive it is, certainly from 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 here in Scotland. I think it's a really good reminder. Um, a lot of things that she said were really interesting about about being, you know, just a human being, and with a, you know the family sacrifices that she's had over the years. And she said that her she really hopes that the next leader could uh, depolarize public debate, focus more on policy issues and personality, and change the tone and tenor of the discourse about politics, which is really interesting. And I think what we can do certainly as churches and as, as Christians is that we can we can both pray for her and pray for our leaders as we're, it's a good reminder to do that, that we're called to regardless of what, what we think about what the government's doing. But secondly, uh, to, to contribute to that, I, I think that's a really good, yeah, kind of call for the for, for Nicola Sturgeon to make is, you know, let's let's kind of take the toxic nature out of a lot of these really difficult debates that we're having at the moment in Scotland and and contribute with with truth and grace and love to them. So I, I think we can do them and, and it's certainly a good time to pray for them. Cool, Chris. That's that's brilliant. Thanks so much. I know you're very busy, so I'll let you go. <laughs> no worries. Peter, I'll come to you first. Did you expect this announcement? I mean, the short answer is no. There was definitely pressure mounting. In fact, I'd spoken to one of our Scottish colleagues on, on the Monday and they just talked about definitely things were shifting a little bit, but the speed, I think, caught everybody out. It was clear it was a hastily arranged press conference. Chris mentioned the gender recognition reform bill. I do think that was definitely a significant influence, as he said. And to, to be fair to Chris, he was one of the prophetic voices pushing back on that in testimony before the Scottish Parliament. And I think there was a, they were maybe didn't expect how well the UK government would handle that, in a sense, pushing back a little bit. And uh, the SNP do tend to like a fight with the UK government, but on this one, it was on an issue that people just basically didn't agree with them on. So it was a combination, as Chris said, of various events. The bottom line is independence, that that movement doesn't seem to be working and the SNP isn't delivering on that core promise. So 
uh, didn't see it coming and definitely intrigued to what Chris said. She's done. She's human. And as human beings, we can't resist reality in the long term. And Nicola Sturgeon is, is kind of dealing with that reality now. I did see one uh, person suggest that while the gender recognition reform bill may have been part of it, also the cancellation of the widening of the A9 road through Scotland also uh, was upsetting a lot of people. So I think there are a few different things taking their toll. Do you have any idea who is likely to replace Nicola Sturgeon? Well, only in that I like reading news like everybody else. And I suppose we have a Scottish officer. Our, our guys were telling us like definitely who's in the running and who's around. I mean, it is, you know, you've got John Swinney, the deputy leader, you've got Angus Robertson, and, and Kate Forbes has been talked about. And it's just interesting to see how even that is framed. Uh, I noticed in one of the papers yesterday, you know, she's been very much painted as the evangelical Christian coming from this, the free church, the we freeze, as they're often called, who have, a, you know, take views on abortion, uh, on marriage, on sex and gender. And I mean, in one sense, I just marvel at how she can be in the same party and a minister alongside Nicola Sturgeon. I think that's the kind of marvel. The only thing that seems to unite them is independence. And I think that's a big question for the party going forward. Uh, what is it that ultimately unites them? So look, we, we can see the runners and riders. There'll be a lot of talk about that. As Chris said, we have to hear about the process and, and who's coming. But it is intriguing the breadth of people who could possibly take over from Nicola Sturgeon and that somebody so different than her is even in the running is intriguing. I think we'll we'll find out more about the timescale over the next few days and then it will emerge who's going to run. But a recent poll said nearly 7 out of 10 uh, Scots didn't know who they wanted to be the next First Minister. Alicia, as Chris said, this resignation has been compared to Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand when she stepped down. Do you think we need to recognise that political leadership is becoming too burdensome for many? Are we scaring people off from engaging in public life? Yeah, I mean, I, I liked what Chris was sharing about the Shizinda Arden comparison and a lot of the tabloids have used that as an example. But one pushback, being a female that looks to other women in leadership, I don't think the demise has been because she's a woman uh, and there's an additional pressure. There are many examples in kind of tech within uh, business industry of women doing incredible work and making progress. What I do think is a challenge or has been a challenge for Nicola Sturgeon is that the personality, charisma leading style, leadership style mixed with a very progressive agenda has kind of isolated and made her base very small. I mean, for eight years, the independence agenda has been the number one thing that she's been calling for, but in recent years been very expansive and kind of broadening that into kind of the equality LGBT uh, space. And so it makes you somewhat vulnerable that you're always, one, your alliances are built through an echo chamber and there's always a mindset of a battle. You're always fighting against whether the media or others. And I think something about progressive politics and kind of that progressive style leadership, there's a need to broaden out your voices, those who inform policy, those who shape decision-making. And I think for Nicola Sturgeon, it had become burdensome. It becomes somewhat of a, a lonesome space. So yeah, I, I, I think that's part of the reason of the burden. Incentive, is this likely to scare politicians? I think those who are ambitious for leadership positions, no, I don't think it will. But those who are progressive in politics or in style might review what they could do better to broaden their coalition. How do they invite and engage 
faith-based organizations, how to engage with other campaign groups that don't see the world uh, as they see it, rather than kind of keeping them on the fringes. There was a book written recently uh, by Isabel Hardman, a spectator journalist, called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. Do you think, though, that we will increasingly get those that are ambitious and perhaps those that have the better motives are stay away from politics? I mean, I think us as a nation, potentially us as Christians, we like the charismatic, those with flair, and don't really challenge the substance. We don't ask greater questions of policy and direction. And I think, or I'm hopeful, that will be the direction going forward in future elections, in future conversations and policy debates of who do you engage, who comes into your room, who you're listening to, who are you prepared to disagree with, but yet embrace on a journey. So I think that's my hope and and kind of long-term because one of the things I've sensed in politics over recent years is that people want two slightly contradictory things. They want the charismatic leader, they want the person who can inspire them, but they also want the person they can relate to. And those two things often don't go to, to go together. We're going we're gonna to move on to our next story. So from the, the politics of Scotland, we're going to move to pop culture and I have to confess, I'm not a particularly close follower of pop music, but I did notice this week that an unholy row was sparked at the Brit Awards this weekend. Sam Smith and Kim Petras performed their song, Unholy. I apologise for that, I just couldn't resist. And more than 200 people have complained to Ofcom about it. It followed a similar performance at the Grammys the week before, which sparked some to ask whether it was part of a satanic ritual and former presidential hopeful Ted Cruz branded it as evil. Alicia, can you fill us in on what happened and tell us a bit more? I guess where I'm more concerned about pop culture and particular Christian artists that enter this space is when they use similar imagery of sex and nudity and kind of Christian messaging and referencing in their lyrics. And in particular, had conversations uh, with a friend about Beyonce's music. Uh, and a recent song called Church Girl on the latest album, where it talks about innocence and purity, then simultaneously is talking about twerking and sex and kind of just being completely, completely skewed uh, in in that regard. So there's definitely a challenge for us as Christians in what we consume uh, to to know that the culture is very much driven by sex, nudity, uh, and, and seeing more and more Christian artists move in that direction is a concern. But is it, is it new? So Madonna introduced uh, Sam Smith at the Grammys. She's been producing uh, somewhat scandalous music videos for literally decades. Is it, is it new? No, it, it's, it's definitely not new. Uh, what I would say is it's heavily persuasive. And, and I guess the technology that existed in Madonna's day was somewhat, you either tuned into MTV to see it or you went to her concerts to see it. Now we, through social media and YouTube, it's it's a pocket away. It's more accessible. It's accessible to a younger generation for whom they're influenced by that music. Uh, and and so that is the, the challenge and concern that I would say. So it's not new. It's more about its reach and its impact. So Peter, how should we respond to this? Well, I think I absolutely agree with Aristi on the it's accessible and it's become more acceptable. I think there was a sense Madonna like was considered a bit of an outlier and, and people talked about it. And it's, it's just everywhere now. It's so all pervasive 
And so to say, oh, I don't think you should be listening to that. You can't, oh gosh, you're some sort of prude. How could you possibly even think that? And yet, I mean, the lyrics are insane when you look at them. We did an episode of Think Before on lyrics, but there's a consumerism, there's a sugar daddy piece to this one. I mean, it's called Unholy. What's the play? Well, it's a play on morality. It's about cheating. It's about sex and sexuality. It's like so mixed up. And the whole performance is so like challenging. I mean, I watched only a part of it. It's just like, my goodness, the outfit that you're in, the satanic element. You know, then Elon Musk says, if that's Satan, we've nothing to worry about, right? Um, but in another sense, that's it's it's Lewis's thing. We either underplay the demonic or we overplay it. And trying to find the right line on this is actually really difficult. And again, not just for us, it's arguably easier for us, but what about young people? So it's a father of daughters and going, what what should they be listening to? Where do I draw a line? What is actually that stuff's really unacceptable? And it's really challenging, I think, to navigate. And how do we um, navigate it in terms of, well, on three levels, what we choose to listen to, what we might let our children listen to, but then actually, should we be pushing for things to be banned? So I'm, I'm hesitant on the banning, but you do reach a point where you go, why is that on mainstream TV? We happened to do it away, and so we watched a little bit of the Brits with the kids, and we ultimately turned it off because it was just rubbish. I mean, it just wasn't good as, as, a, as a spectacle. They were all over the place. It was disjointed. Nobody seemed coherent. Nobody said anything. I mean, and then you got... So actually, we watched the Stormzy bit that apparently was brought forward because the Sam Smith bit was malfunctioned. It was good. Um, I, I enjoyed that part of it, but the whole thing was just bizarre, and you're just going, actually, this isn't good, so... What are we going to do and and speak into that? So we get into the car and we're looking at Spotify list and we're saying, kids, this isn't good stuff. Just walk me back through that lyric we've just sung. And I catch myself saying it. They are catchy. They are good. They are pervasive and persuasive. As Alyssa was saying, that's the most challenging bit. It'd be easy if it was rubbish. This stuff gets in your head and it works. It's what shapes the cultural water. So for me, that's the biggest challenge as a parent and as a listener is going, that stuff shaped in my mind. I'm catching myself singing it. Right. What do we need to do about that? Yes, there's definitely a level of intentionality for parents, I would say, in terms of engaging with the pop culture and kind of unpacking and teasing out with your child what is it they're listening to and why why you have concerns, have conversations around it rather than it be given. I mean, for myself, I can turn off. I've been a lot more ruthless in recent years because I just know over-sexualized content doesn't do much from my own walk with the Lord or with my own pursuit of purity. So I need to completely filter and I need to be held accountable to that. But I definitely think for children and younger people, parents need to embrace or not embrace, engage with the pop culture uh, and be bold enough to have some of those hard conversations of should you be listening to this and, and why and why not? And every part of the Sam Smith experience is, a, I would say, a cultural engagement and a cultural framing. So colleague already his message this morning wanting to write an article saying how do we refer to sam smith sam smith would say that they're non-binary and they want to be referred to as they but that's a piece of cultural framing we've written and spoken a lot about gender dysphoria a recognized medical condition non-binary is not that so now we're in a framing moment of deconstructing social norms so there's an attempt there to say you need to talk about me in this way that's a cultural war engagement not driven by me that's a reaction sam smith saying i need to be referred to in this way so immediately everything is framed. My kids, I asked them, like, and they say, oh, Sam Smith now identifies as they, and we have a conversation about what that means because this is very live to them, and Sam Smith is engaging in a piece of cultural framing. We need to absolutely recognize that and say, I disagree with that framing. I don't want to 
issue. I want to be compassionate, but I also think, hold on here. We're not dealing in the medical realities here. Here we're trying to redefine reality in our own terms. And I'm, I'm not going to play that game with you, Sam Smith. Well, this past week's also seen the Super Bowl take place. And the Super Bowl is often as much about the interval performances and the adverts than the American football that goes on between the breaks. Rihanna gave her first live performance in five years as the centerpiece of the show. And she announced her pregnancy after descending to the stage. And we, we can talk about that. But what I really want to talk about is a pair of adverts that screens during the breaks from a came call from a campaign called He Gets Us. Peter, can you fill us in a bit about this? Well, I have to say, Rihanna's outfit was made by a Northern Ireland <laughs> designer. I can't get past that. And it was it was designed to reveal her pregnancy bump. And it is fascinating how the papers still frame that. So if it's a wonder baby, it's pregnancy, and we're all excited and we love it. And I did think that was fascinating. On the ad campaign, I mean, numbers are, are bandied about. I've, as a best, I've understood this is like a $100 million campaign, but not for the Super Bowl. This is at large. This has been going on for nine months or more and has a kind of couple, of, maybe a two-year lifespan. This is a really simple, I actually think really clear and effective campaign. He gets us that is all about signposting to Jesus and all about signposting people then on to the local church. I could probably critique it. I could probably write an essay. If you're at, the, at Bible college, you might be asked to do it. I actually think it's pretty good. And $100 million is a large amount of money. But in the scheme of things, actually in Christian spending in the US, and what this has opened up to get two Super Bowl ads, to get the country talking about this, it's a really simple. The ads that I've watched anywhere actually still photographs, often with music or simple uh, text over it. This is not high edit, complex stuff. It's just really impactful. And reminding people who Jesus is and stripping away a lot of the cultural baggage as best it can. I actually think it's fascinating and really good. So the ad space at the Super Bowl, I think, cost about $20 million as part of a much wider campaign. The money is something that's uh, provoked criticism. U.S. House Representative uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she took to Twitter having a go at this and uh, suggesting that it is not what Jesus would do. Alicia, do you, do you think it was a good use of money and do you think it's going to work? I mean, it's easy for me to say it's not my money, so I'm not too too stressed about that. But I mean, twenty million dollars uh, is an outrageous sum of money. Um, I guess it met their objectives, isn't that it raised the profile of the campaign and more broadly what they're seeking to do? I guess where my critique is isn't about the money spent; it's the oversimplification of the Jesus story, the gospel narrative in sound bites. I mean, be like a child love your enemies sounds incredible. Who wouldn't want to be that? Who wouldn't want to be childlike? Who wouldn't want to, you know, love their enemies? And yet when you read the gospels to do that in the natural man is quite impossible. That's not, that's not easy. And so I I guess I'm critical of campaigns that simplify and make shortcuts on the hard teachings of Jesus to take up your cross, to deny yourself, to, you know, to, to follow his lead in that regard Forgiveness and love sounds easy, but it all came at a price and and to follow him completely also comes at a cost. So it it instigates a conversation and probably takes a person 80% of the way there, but then it's the responsibility of the local church and Christians to kind of explain that it's not a freebie. It's not easy. Yeah, and I think that tie into local church is really critical. And I I mean, I hear you and I do think it's it's definitely good. 
but I think we'll probably put out the hard stuff more as a church often and emphasize that our culture seems to say that and doesn't see Jesus currently as the kind of winsome engaging figure that he often was in the public square in his day. So I think the lean into that space is potentially really helpful, and especially in those short 30-second clips. And we, I think Talking Jesus told us that the top area people now search for faith and Jesus is Google. And I don't think our resources are as good in that space as they are in other spaces. This is one offering. I think it's at least a decent effort. And we already know that people are turning up at church as a consequence of it, and people are following Jesus. That doesn't mean it's all okay. But I just stole in my stat that I was about to bring in that uh, according to the Talking Jesus research, 26% of people go to Google uh, to find out more about Jesus. 10% also say they would go to YouTube. So if we're going to be investing in helping people find out more about Jesus, spending on helping them find it on the internet is, a, is going to be a crucial place. Well, please do follow us on our social media channels. You can follow us on Twitter at EAUK News or on Instagram at Evangelical Alliance. And if you want to tell us what we should be talking about, what you're interested in, or just tell us whether you enjoy listening to Cross Section or not, email us at cross.section at EAUK.org. For some of us who spend a lot of time online or on Twitter, the last week has been awash with talk about something happening in a college campus in Kentucky. Until late last week, I'd never even heard of Asbury, but a chapel service there that started last Wednesday hasn't stopped. Uh, a bit more attention has grown in the last few days, even attracting national me- mainstream attention in the, some have called it revival, some have described it as an awakening, others are hesitant about what label they might put on it. Uh, Peter, could you tell us a bit more about what's happening in this college campus? Yeah, well, like you, I began to discover a little bit of this uh, online. Uh, as you say, last Wednesday, they had a chapel service, standard students come in. Um, but at the end, as the, the choir, the gospel choir were closing things up, it, it didn't close. People just still didn't leave. Um, there seemed to be a real sense of God's presence. Some people like that language. Some people bristle and go, what does that mean? That's how people are describing it. They stayed in a space of worship. Uh, there wasn't a lot of razzmatazz. This is a pretty basic kind of setup. There's no lights. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no fancy stuff. This was just people playing music. And that continued initially, I think, for it's 100 hours. And now, now we're, we're essentially just over a week on. And, and there's been other chapels or places within the campus opened up. I mean, this is a campus with a theological seminary. There are people doing PhD students. There are prophology there. Um, so I think all that helps me to go, like these guys are looking at it. They had a, re- a kind of revival movement there in the 1970s where something relatively similar happened. And there are certainly some cat. Um, I mean, we'll talk more. I don't know all that's going on. I, I'm reading that. And then I'm reading people who I kind of trust who are going there. Someone like John Tyson, who's headed there, Pete Gregg, who leads 24-7 prayer. He's not been there, but they've connected up with him. And others saying something interesting seems to be happening let's let's put that on it for now let's not call it revival or awakening those have all sorts of freighted uh, language or, or ideas behind them let's just say that there seems to be something interesting that's drawing students to stay in that space for a long time again people coming to know jesus feeling feeling his presence in the room people repenting of things going on in their lives so a lot of signs we would go well that that seems really positive and people expressing that back out in worship and in prayer so a lot of the outward signs meet things that we would say that seems really good and in line with what the Bible would say would be happening in that moment. And there seems to be a lot of wise people around stewarding that moment and just, just kind of helping to 
to lead others through it. It is interesting that this is a place where similar things have happened before. Peter mentioned 1970. I think there were previous ones in the earlier 20th century. And that's just interesting, if nothing else. Alicia, how do you think we should respond to stories like this? I mean, uh, church leadership team have been posting updates regularly, so it's definitely with curiosity uh, and interest. I take Peter's point, not calling it a revival in this moment, but there is something to be said that on the day that we are talking about Synod, this has taken place in the US. And I think there's something of curiosity in that as Christians of what is God doing in and amongst the nations? And I think ultimately it's stirring up a greater hunger for him, for his kingdom here on earth. There is a lot that's going on for which as much as we advocate in the space, as much as we desire for law changes, there just comes a point where only the Lord can make a way and can make the change. So I'm definitely curious. I'm currently reading about different revivals throughout history uh, and just being challenged in my own prayer life. Am I devoted to the same amount of hours of prayer? I don't think I am. So, I mean, it's definitely encouraging me to to pursue Christ and pursue his presence in prayer more in my day to day and the things that are going on in the UK. One of the comments or quotes that I've seen shared a few times, it's been attributed to different people, Rob Parsons among them, is in situations like this, I'd rather be gullible than cynical. Do either of you think that's a fair approach or do you think we're basically suspending our critical judgment? I think it is a fair approach because I think there is quite a lot of cynicism already coming at this. There's going to be uh, cynicism, I would think, from the kind of wider culture because this isn't something they'll tend to understand although some will and again that's a real moment of interest there's already cynicism around the kind of the ads at the super bowl the cynicism about this moment there's cynicism about things like and everything's gone on it is so easy to move to cynicism and i i mean i put my hands up and say that as somebody who's probably heads to skepticism easier and i'm really trying to challenge my own heart to go actually i think there's some interest and i think there's the wisdom of saying let's not tag it with language that freights it with something and the reason I, you know, I mentioned both John Tyson and Pete Gregg is they're both, I would say, real students of revival. I mean, Pete would say he spent 30 years looking at this, looking at patterns, looking at what might happen and praying for it to happen. And John Tyson would say something similar. He has gone to the places where it's happened. He's talked to people. In fact, recently he had people from the Lewis Revival in the church there in his own church in New York just a matter of weeks ago. These are people who have longed for, prayed for, and sought after this, but also sought to understand it so that when it comes, they're going, this seems to be something interesting. This is worth, you know, paying attention to. And that's all I want to do. Like Alyssia would just say, is my prayer life in that space? Why is this not the thing I want to jump to immediately? You know, actually, I'm excited. This is seems to be a move of God. And I absolutely believe that's possible. So let, I, I just, my main prayer is that it is exactly what we're seeing. One of the, one interesting thing that I came across was an interview with uh, between Glenn Scrivener and Robert Cunningham. Robert Cunningham is based in Kentucky, he leads an organization called Kentucky for Christ. And this interview was really interesting. It's on YouTube and we'll put a link uh, on our webpage so you can have a look at that. He traveled down to the Asbury College campus, I think a day or two after it started. He's a Presbyterian pastor in the US from a more reformed a background and he posted a twitter thread that he actually subsequently deleted because it was being used in ways that he didn't want it to be used and he explains that in the podcast but he he says this revivals are determined not with foresight but more with reflection the notion of revival is not determined in the days ahead but more in the decade to come 
Does this overflow into a social reordering of justice and mercy? Are we going to be hearing stories for years to come of repentance and restoration? And I think that's why we can be enthusiastic in the moment about what is happening, but also aware that the fruits come in the in the years to come, not just in the moments to come. Well, I think we are uh, we're just about done for cross section this week. Next week uh, we have a guest with us. Uh, we have Emma Scrivener. She is an author, and uh, she'll be talking a bit about her books, uh, a new name and a new day. And so that will be a great episode to tune into. Um, I think I would want to close with us reflecting on this talk of actually how are we praying for revival, how are we praying for God to move. And actually, I, I'm excited about what's happening, but I don't want it to be one college campus in Kentucky. I'm excited by the stories of what happened in 1970 of 2,000 teams going out from that campus to 113 different uh, locations. I'm excited about people being inspired and praying for revival, people committing to praying for revival in their places, in their towns, in their cities, in their villages, in churches being revived and renewed and communities being transformed by the love of Jesus. So let's pray for that. Let's pray that we would see God move in these places. Thank you and speak to you all soon. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.